Paul talks again about predestination. Jews and Gentiles are both heirs of the promise, and women must submit to their husbands. All this and more in the book of Ephesians. Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, and this is Brandon, and we are pastors here in Santa Cruz, California at Gospel Community Church. Welcome, like, subscribe, comment, and just so you know, we are not sexist at our church. You know that it just you said comment, and then you th- said predestination, so that's how I made this connection. But we've, we've got a lot of interaction on our video on predestination. A lot of people have questions about that, which is awesome. That's great. Yeah, yeah. That's great. And so sometimes, you know, you just hear isolated verses. You don't see the things in context. So hopefully seeing some of Ephesians will help. But uh, that seems to be a pretty common question we get, even in uh, really those two you just said, really predestination and the role of women in the mm-hmm. home and in the church. Those are two of the most controversial things By it, far. within Christianity. Right? If you're already in Christianity, those are the most controversial things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely within the church, within especially just our community, our membership classes. Yeah, we always get those questions. I mean, probably once a week we get a predestination question. I do from somebody, a college student, a newer believer, a believer that's never really wrestled with those doctrines. Yeah, no. Yeah, and then we wreck them with facts and logic. <laughs> yes, just kidding. I mean, <laughs> well, facts we, and logic. No, they're wrecking though. No, yeah, the wreck, love, wrecking love. via God's word. Yeah, by no, it's, simply. It's good. Opening this wonderful book and, and reading the words. I mean, my so my exposure to predestination was my first year of college. Mm-hmm. I went to Masters University, and one of my friends, I, I think I brought it up. I was like, dude, people believe like predestination. Isn't that crazy? And he was like, that's not crazy. Like, look at Ephesians 1. And then I was like, but what about, you know, ask him like four or five questions. And then like within 20 minutes, I was like, all right. I give up. (laughs) I am. I never knew that. I'm stupid. So anyway, so that's new to you. It's it's very common. That's a new thing to you. But we got to give some background information though here first before we get into all the juiciness. Yes, of course. So who wrote this wonderful, wonderful book about God and His wonderful doctrine? The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. Now there is some dispute about this. Oh my word! Here we go. But again. I don't really care. Yeah. I don't really care. Okay. I, I mean, care. there hasn't there wasn't dispute about this until very, very recently. And I, I you know, someone said essentially like about five percent of the language of this letter is a little bit different than his other language other letters, five to ten percent. So what's more likely that somebody wrote a letter that just happened to be ninety percent like the same as what Paul would write, with a little bit of differences, or that Paul wrote something that had a little bit of variation in it? Like, well, that's, yeah, that's pretty good Going argument. Not the latter, okay. You know, <laughs> like Paul uses different language, and each of, his, each of his books, he'll use language that is unique to that book, right? right. It's very common for him, called hapax legomena, if you care about again? the word. It sounds like I'm like, yeah, hacking something up. Hapax legomena. So it's a word <laughs> that is used. <laughs> yeah, so it's a word that is used only in that place in the New Testament. So uh, yes. there's a few of these in, in Ephesians, but it happens a lot in his writings. Yeah. So anyway, you don't care. You're not listening to this. You don't care about this. So, who wrote the book? Paul wrote the book. We're, we're going to keep hearing this. Stop Paul talking this about book. it. Paul wrote this book. Paul wrote this book. He wrote most of it. He wrote, Testament. yes. Yeah. He wrote, if it says he wrote it, he wrote it. Okay? Yeah. Just just trust your Bibles. They are 
Very trustworthy. All right. So Paul wrote it, but who was he writing to? Uh, the church in Ephesus. Right? Oh, so a church, surprising again. Yeah, exactly. The Ephesians. Mm-hmm. You thought it was going to be the church in Ephesia, but Ephesia, it was the, Ephesus. Ephesus. Yeah. Yes. So um, a church he was very close to. He spent three years there. Mm-hmm. Right. He, he is, Ephesus is in Asia Minor, which is also Turkey. Oh, Turkey, they make good sandwiches. Turkey makes great sandwiches. Yeah, we already went through this. Yeah, I know. Turkey bacon avocado. It's reminding you. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Acts chapter nineteen, <laughs> that's where he that's where he uh, you know initiates this church in Ephesus. Mm-hmm. In Acts chapter twenty, he has that very famous speech with the Ephesian elders, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. Anyway, that it's a good one for pastors. Um, and probably this was a letter that was circulated to multiple churches. Mm-hmm. So we're not sure like how that worked exactly. Was this like he made multiple copies and this one was addressed to Ephesus or? Uh, I don't, I don't know, but it does seem like this was for su- a church that he's so close to mm-hmm. to write a letter that's so impersonal mm. is strange. Like Ephesians is probably the least personal of all of his letters. Mm. Um, the, at the end, is there even? Let me see. The, is there some mention? I'm, I'm trying to remember. Of yeah, there's like no mention of even in Romans, which is very general. There's a bunch of like, hey, say hi to this Names, person, and like, yeah, yeah. Citations, yeah, this is like very doctrinal. It's not addressing any of their like it's not bringing up specific things in their church context, right? And it's not bringing up certain people, and so it's kind of weird that he wouldn't address this this church specifically, since he loves all of them a lot. So yeah. it's probably just a letter that was kind of circulated, an yeah. encyclical letter or a, a circular I, letter. I guess even with the final greeting, I mean, it says Tychicus, you know, you know, we'll tell you everything, but it's yeah, it still seems broad. Yeah, you got you got Tychicus yeah. showing up at the end there, but. Yeah, yeah but, but very general. So you'll probably notice that, that there's, hey, there's not like a lot of his right. specific heart to them. I mean, he does saying he's praying for them and things like that. But So it was written by Paul, written to possibly a group of other churches. Possibly this one was just, you know, singularly addressed to Ephesus. Um, when was it written? So it was written while he was in prison, which narrows it down to about half of Paul's life. Okay. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, he, he, he is in prison a few times, right? So, And he mentions this a few times. And Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon are known as Paul's prison epistles. So he writes those from prison, and he just makes sure that you really know he's in prison. And he's like, I'm going to ask you to do this, but I'm in prison. So, you know, kind of laying it on thick a little bit. But uh, we're not sure exactly which prison he was in. Mm-hmm. So kind of the, the standard historical thing was that he was probably in prison in Rome, which would put this into the early 60s AD. It's also possible that this was his um, imprisonment in Caesarea, okay. which was um, in Acts chapters 23 and 24. Mm-hmm. So it would be earlier, and he spent a couple of years there. So right, he might have had this extended time to write these letters. We don't know for sure, but again, the historical argument is typically R- Rome, Acts 28. So it's like the very end, probably his first Roman imprisonment. Because he gets imprisoned again, and then he gets he he dies. Right. But anyway, so that's there's arguments for both, but that means it's written either late fifties or early sixties. Very good. So why did he write the letter? Uh, I mean, he wrote this. There's not a clear occasion for him writing it because it is a very general letter. But it seems to be like Romans, sort of summing up his theology mm. and emphasizing. I mean, really, it is a lot different than than Romans. So it's emphasizing very different things. Right. Um, but it seems to be more. He wants to give this theme of the church in Christ. Mm-hmm. So that's what he's focusing on again and again is the church of God and this phrase in Christ. So you have to understand that phrase to understand Ephesians at any length. Right. 
because he just keeps mentioning it. Now it's a prepositional phrase, right? In is a preposition. If you don't know what that means, I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't <laughs> want to go into all of it, but that phrase it modifies other words. But the the idea of that phrase is that it's speaking to our identity that we are fully in Christ, mm. that who we are is placed in Him, right. that we have unity with Christ is mm-hmm. the idea, and that's really at the center of the gospel is our unity with Christ that we are. We're buried with him. We're raised with him. We identify with his death. Mm-hmm. More than identify, that's too weak of a word, right? But we are united fully with him mm. in those events. And so we are now receiving the blessings that he deserves. So that idea of being in Christ, fully your identity placed in him is so important, really to the entire gospel message, but definitely to the book of Ephesians. Mm. So you'll see this a ton if you if you start to notice it, right? If you if you and it's in other books too, but really in Ephesians, it's it's mentioned so many times. So it's a clear central focus. Cool, very. So he lays out the gospel, which unites humanity and leads to transformation for people, and it's it's all about being in Christ. Awesome, yeah, very insightful. Um, how's how is Ephesians structured? Yeah, it's pretty pretty basic. I mean, there's really just kind of two halves: one to three, salvation in Christ four to six, sanctification in Christ, right? Sometimes it's called the theology section at the beginning, the practical section, but we know that the practical is theological yeah. and theology is practical. Right. So, you know, don't get offended by that, but that's kind of the general idea. It, it's helpful for me. It's helpful for me to think of it in those wor- those terms. Yeah, awesome. Well, chapter one, Ephesians. Let's dive in. And, and this was the first um, book that our church uh, taught through, was it not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So when we when we first started, we decided to to do this, was Bible study first, and then it kind of became, slowly became sermons. And then we were doing uh, full services, but yeah, I I really wanted to do this because starting a church to to look to a book that defines the church mm-hmm. and lays out so many of those foundational doctrines. It's so good, man. This is a book that you should memorize chunks of this book or memorize the whole thing. Yeah. I I would definitely endorse that. Chapter one, verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So. Again, he's he's going to emphasize God's will, God's choice of his people. Mm-hmm. It's a big theme for Paul, but it's going to be huge in this, in identifying who the church is. Yeah. And he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. There you have the first mention, in Christ, mm-hmm. in Christ Jesus. And and just notice, that in this first chapter even, just notice the amount of in him or in Jesus or in Christ references in this first chapter. Mm. So he begins, he gets into the meat of it with the longest run-on sentence in the New Testament. So chapters or verses 3 to 14 <laughs> are all one sentence in Greek, um, which is crazy, right? Like the idea, Paul's just like so excited, he's so overjoyed, he's just kind of gushing all of these truths yeah. in this run-on sentence. But this is, I mean, beautiful, beautiful words here that we don't, we can't spend nearly enough time thinking on. So we'll just hit on a few things. He starts off, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So God is blessed and he blesses us. Right. How? Well, in Christ. Mm. So because of our identity in Christ, because we've we're rescued by him and we're we're placed in him. We now are going to receive all the the spiritual blessings. Right. So everything good. I mean, think back to the Abrahamic promise mm-hmm. of blessing to the world. Right. Jesus is the fulfillment of that because He's bringing every spiritual blessing to us. Mm. Yeah, Amen. But it's in the the heavenly places, or literally in the heavenlies. It's a it's a sort of a plural of that word. 
So we know that we're not going to get everything we want in this life. Mm-hmm. That's not what life's about, but that in eternity we will we will have everything we want. Right. There's there is a like the prosperity gospel makes it so ugly. This idea <laughs> of you know that Jesus died so you could have a Tesla or a Bentley or whatever I don't know whatever's expensive, no. so you could be rich and and famous. The, the the perversion of that is not that God doesn't want to bless us materially. Mm-hmm. He will someday. Right. The perversion of that is to say that that's in the here and now and to undermine what's really important and central for us now, which right. is justification. Yeah. Right. And all of those ideas. Yeah. But He's going to bless us in that way, and it's guaranteed for us because we're in Christ. Mm-hmm. Verse four: Even as He chose us in Him, right. in again before the foundation of the world. So the choice of us was a choice that was in him. Christ is called God's elect, mm-hmm. and we are elect in him, right? So we're chosen in him, and his saving work saves those who are his elect. Right. Um, and then he goes on, right? In love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. And then he says, verse 7, in him we have received redemption through his blood. So he's predestined us, in him Mm -hmm. he's redeemed us in him the purchase was made in jesus and he goes he goes on again you know that this plan was set forth in christ verse nine Mm -hmm. um, to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth so again it's all about jesus as the center and our unity with him as guaranteeing to us all the good things that god's promised and we've even received our inheritance in him verse 11 um, we heard the word of truth in him, verse 13. So you, again, we could just go on and on about this, but this the, these ideas of redemption, of predestination, of God uniting all things in Jesus, these are going to be big themes in the rest of, of uh, Ephesians. And you could just spend hours and hours just meditating on one of these verses. Right. They're so powerful and so beautiful. But we have to go on, right? <laughs> so we, we don't have much time. But chapter 2 talks more about the gospel and how this works. And really it's about, you know, these sort of two sides of the same coin, twin realities, right? What we do and what God does. Mm. And so he starts off, and you. So this is the first three verses are everything that you and I do. This is what we this, you want to know what you contribute to your salvation. Here <laughs> it is, right? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So he's talking about spiritual death because you're still walking in sins, right? So he's talking about a spiritual death. Right. This is this is what you bring. You bring to the table that you are dead. You can do nothing. Well, you like are that, uh, Jonathan Edwards quote. Um, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, there you go. That's your contribution. You were not only that. You were following the world. You were following Satan. You were living in the passions of your flesh. You were doing what your your body wanted. You were by nature children of wrath. Yeah. So that's who you were. That's your identity. Is that you're a child of wrath. You're deserving of wrath, or you come from wrath. You're deserving of wrath. It's, it's a bad, it's a bad diagnosis, right? I mean, this is this is really bad to hear. Yeah, stage four cancer. So yeah. that is that all comes from and you. Yeah. That's everything that you do. And then verse four says, "But God, yeah. but God." So he reverses it, right? With this, with this massive. These two words are massive, right? But God. So God reverses. Our situation. God comes in and does something that we can't do. Right. So this is the other side of it, which is that he being rich in mercy, 
made us alive together with Christ. I'm skipping over some stuff here, obviously. Verse five, he made us alive. So he brings someone who's spiritually dead back to life. Mm. This shows to us the, the reality of predestination. Right. If you were dead spiritually, and the only way you could be redeemed is if God made you alive, then you, you were not able, again, in a spiritual sense, to contribute any sort of action or uh, f- force of will to that, to that uh, just, you know, salvation. Right, exactly. And so just to be clear, like pre-de- the predestination of God it is not God looking forward in history and observing your choice to choose him. It is, he, it is him literally resurrecting you spiritually from the dead to believe in him. Yeah, I mean, I would hear this, the illustration when I was a kid of like, God throws you a life preserver, but you got to grab onto it. Right. Like I heard that a bunch. Yeah. But it's like, no, you're like dead in the grave, buried. Yeah, you drowned already. Yeah. You're drowned. You're at the bottom <laughs> of the ocean, right? And God picks you up and he resuscitates you. Right. He brings you back to life, whatever you want to put it. It's entirely a work of God. But lest we stop there, because often, often we do, like God made us alive. But Paul goes further, and these, these are very important terms. He says in verse 6, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in, in Christ. Christ Jesus. Yeah. So be, you didn't just die with Christ. You were made alive spiritually. Mm-hmm. You're resurrected. You're raised up. Romans again. Why? Well, because Jesus was raised up. Right. No. And now where is Jesus? He didn't stop at his resurrection. He actually ascended into heaven at the right hand of God. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, you're now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So this is this is a, a massive statement again. He's saying you ha- your status, your security, all of that is in Christ, and mm-hmm. he is in heaven. So this really sets the tone for, for how we should live our lives, right? An incredible, incredible statement. And then, of course, verses 8 through 10 are some of the most famous from Ephesians, but we're going to skip them. Um, so <laughs> verse, let's go to verse 11. So verse 11 to 22, he gets into, so he's talked about the, the, the justification and saving work of Jesus in verses 1 through 10. Mm-hmm. You were dead, he made you alive, but and that's sort of individual salvation. But then he speaks to the corporate realities of salvation, of Jew and Gentile as these separate entities, separate groups that are brought together in the gospel message. Mm -hmm. And so that's what he does in verses 11 to 22. He talks about how there is unity now between these two groups. That it's not that one family is saved and you have to become part of that human family or that human ethnicity Mm -hmm. to be saved, but that God saves people from every nation and every ethnicity in the world. Right. So this is very interesting. So verse 14 says, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So there was a, a division between the two and God, Christ broke that down by his death. Right, we would say it's probably the, the law mm-hmm. that he that he broke that down in order that the two could become one, right. and that they could be together. And he goes on to talk about how we are a temple of God. Mm. We are a temple of God, and we are um, so we are this place where God is now dwelling. All right, verse twenty-two. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Right. So Jew and Gentile are together now in one body and we're being built into the place where God dwells on earth in order to continue his mission or the mission that Jesus Christ started by his work on the cross. Yeah, which I mean, I think I feel like to our culture, that's not like a big thing. But for this culture and the history of the Jewish people, 
God calling a specific people. This is a big thing. It's a big step, and there's glimmers of it in the Old Testament, obviously. But yeah, this is a massive thing for this moment in history in the church. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah, exactly. So he goes on chapter three. He uses this word mystery, uh, mysterion in Greek, um, but he it's used more. That word is used more in Ephesians than anywhere else. I like so, the Greek version rather than the English mysterion. One. Yeah, that's. Way I feel better. like that would be like a like a supervillain or something. Yeah, I don't know. It's just cool sound. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's the idea of the mystery is it's something that was once hidden that is now revealed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's sort of the idea. So what is it that was hidden that is now made clear in Jesus? He starts in verse one. He starts this sentence, you know, for this reason, and then he cuts off the the verse and he goes on this huge tangent about the mystery. And then he gets first fourteen. He gets back to that <laughs> verse one for this reason. Oh, I forgot. About yeah, this. <laughs> uh, yeah, for, yeah, for this reason. Yeah, again. Um, but what is what is he speaking to here? Well, the mystery is brought up in verse three, right? That he has insight given by God into this mystery, and he says what the mystery is in verse six. Mm-hmm. This mystery is. The Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Yeah. So the, the the mystery is that Gentiles are fully included in the people of God. Right. And again, this is, we might say, well, even in the Old Testament, like non, non-believers could be saved. Look at Ruth. Right. Look at Rahab. There's a lot of examples we could point to. So why, how is this new or how is this a mystery? Well, back, it's always been that in order to be saved, you had to not only believe in God, but also become Jewish. Mm. And so that's the big distinction is that he's saying Gentiles don't have to become Jewish to be full 100% partakers in this covenant. So that is unique. That is a different thing. So there's no second-class citizens in the church. Everyone is united under the same head and, and part of the same body. Yep. So it's it's a pretty great way to connect astounding thing. the rest of the book. By the way, what's that? Great way to connect the rest of the book. How how so? Well, the body and all that. Kind oh of yes, coming. the yeah. function of the body. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Wow, look at that. <laughs> and then verses. How much time we have here? We don't have much time. That verses eight through ten are some of my favorite, right? But I won't read them. They just speak to the cosmic nature of the church. Mm-hmm. How what we're doing really, if you cross reference with chapter six. Um, and the armor of God. Ah, uh, yes. That he's saying in verse ten, right? That God created the church so that who He is, His wisdom, could be shown to angels and demons, mm. to the, the eternal powers. So that what we do as a church is communicating to not just to our world around us, but to the heavenly places, wow. right? To the eternal realms, who God is and what He's doing. Mm. So that I mean, really ups the importance of what the church is. Yeah. He ends with this amazing prayer in chapter three. Again, meditate on this, read it. Chapter four, though, chapter four. He starts talking about the unity of the spirit, right? So he says to walk worthy of that calling we've been given. So there's a transition here into this more practical section. Mm -hmm. And he, he, in verses four through six, he gives seven ones, right? There's one one, uh, body, one spirit, one Lord, one faithful baptism, one God and Father of all. So he's listing all of these things, and he's saying these are things that unify us. Because we don't have multiple gods, we have one God, so we're unified. But verse seven, he says, it's been given to each one of us, yeah. right? To have the grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, even though we're unified, there's also this amazing diversity in the body of Christ. Right. We all have different strengths, and that allows God's wisdom to be shown in a greater way. Yeah. It allows the victory of Christ to be displayed. Mm-hmm. 
and and he he talks about how in this chapter how the body is built up as we each play our part in the body mm-hmm. right as we speak the truth in love as we function uh, as we should as we care for each other all these things right that we through our ministry to each other are what builds each other up so given that that's how the body works Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 are very important verses yeah. for us as pastors, right? He speaks to the all the roles of, of ministry, all these leadership positions, and he says that those, including pastors, mm-hmm. right, pastor teachers, he says that they're to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. So we, it's not that pastors build up the body, it's that we build each other up. Right. And so we play a special role in equipping for ministry, but that we're not the only ones who do the ministry. Right. Everyone does the ministry. Right. So just a great, a great passage as well. Yeah. Great then we get some of the church. we get some of the put off, put on idea in verses twenty two and twenty four. Right. Put off the old man. Mm-hmm. Put on the new man. Yeah. Right. If if you're in Christ, if this is your identity, then start to dress like it. Start to act yeah. like it. Right. Yeah. So toss away the old clothes, put on the new clothes of obedience to God, and he gives some just great practical exhortations in chapter four. Yeah, chapter five we get into the the household code, right, which is which is common in, in these letters. But he says, verse twenty one, right, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then he gives three different relationships, right, wives and husbands, children and parents, servants and masters. Yeah. So when he says submit to each other again. Don't use this as a universal acid for the next three, next few sections, right? Right. Oh, when he says submit to each other, he means everyone submits to everyone else. Yeah. So, you know, husbands submit to their wives, and I guess then also parents submit to their children, and employees submit to their, or bosses submit to their employees. Like it doesn't, it wouldn't make any sense, right? Yeah. And so, so what he's saying here is not that everyone submits to everyone else. What he's saying is submit to the proper people. Mm hmm. Clearly, right? Right. And and one of those is wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives. There's an order in the home that is so precious and important yeah, and needs to be demonstrated by the church. It goes back to Genesis, but it's also displayed in the work of Christ. Right. Right. So this has been consistent throughout the Bible. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a certain order in the home between male and female. But really what he points out here is that marriage is a display of the gospel. Right where God, Christ pursues his church, wins his church, pays for his church, and in the same way, husbands should have the sacrificial love for their wives. Yeah, and the, the ultimate authority, I mean, I think this is out saying, if you're reading you know, somewhat honestly the New Testament, everything submits under the leadership of Christ. Yeah. Everything's under that authority, right? So yeah. husbands, wives, slaves, masters, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely, yeah. And and we, I think we went into this passage in more detail in a different video, right? I was right? going to say, yeah. So, like, not only can you check out our predestination videos, but you can check out our uh, roles in the church, roles in uh, family, too. Yeah. We have a video on that that talks about these topics more in detail. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So, but yeah, verse 32, he's speaking of, of marriage, and he says, this mystery is profound. Again, mysterion, a word hmm. previously used for this incredible, right, bringing together of Jew and Gentile. He's saying that this, the marriage is a mystery as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Right. So he's looking at this greater reality that our relationships are meant to speak to. Mm-hmm. And nothing more than marriage. Marriage is the greatest relationship. So right. he, he ends with the armor of God. And I, I kind of wonder, like, why I end with the armor of God here in chapter 6? But I really think what's happening here is he's 
he's spent chapters one through three looking at the cosmic dimensions of the church, right? Mm-hmm. That the unity of all things, like Christ being above all, and how the, the church displays the manifold wisdom of God to the angels and demons. And here he he he's kind of shifted for a while to the ordinary. Mm-hmm. Hey, don't lie. Be, speak the truth to the right M- marriages and parents and all that stuff. And then he goes back to the cosmic. Mm. And he ends on this cosmic note of don't forget that infused in everything that you do and the ordinary stuff is the extraordinary. Right. Is That's the good. reality, right, yeah. of what God is doing. And so he ends with this and he ends with encouragement to um, to, to stand firm against evil, right, to fight against evil, these spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's the same word used previously, right, mm-hmm. in chapter 1. But he talks about the armor of God and he gives these details. Now, this actually comes from Isaiah. Mm-hmm. This is not unique yeah. to Ephesians. So it comes from Isaiah. You can look at chapter 11, 49, 59. They'll give you some more info on the armor of God. But this is a familiar metaphor, and he's saying, "Take this up, fight this battle against evil in your mm. in your daily life." Yeah. So I just love that heightening of our sights to the eternal and the cosmic at the end here. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, great way to end this book, and yeah, so much for us to chew on as we think about our own lives and like how important our place is in the life of the church too. Yeah. So, awesome. Well, thanks for joining us for Daily Gospel. We'll see you guys next week for the Book of Philippians.